guys, look, see, I did it. I did it. I managed to once again bring cannibalism into this. There is always a good chance that cannibalism will pop up in an AF Out episode. Welcome to A Popular History of Unpopular Things, a podcast that makes history more fun and accessible. My kind of history is the unpopular stuff. Disease, death, and destruction. I like learning about all things bloody, gross, mysterious, and weird. So last week, I talked about H.H. Holmes and his murder castle. We concluded that although he did murder nine people, he doesn't really live up to the legends that we've built up about H.H. Holmes since his arrest and execution. Much of what we thought we knew about Holmes was either an exaggeration, even from Holmes himself sometimes, or sensationalized news. Now, the late 19th century was no stranger to killers, and this week we'll be taking a look at another really famous one, but across the pond. This week, we'll take a closer look at Jack the Ripper, a killer who preyed upon women in the Whitechapel neighborhood of London in 1888. The only confirmed deaths we can attribute to the Ripper are five women. Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Kate Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. It's possible he killed more, but those five women are considered his canonical victims. The rest can't be confirmed. It's just like how last week we couldn't pin all the bad things that happened in Chicago on H.H. Holmes, right? We can't just pin any murder of a Whitechapel woman on Jack the Ripper. So anyway, my goal is to paint a scene of what late 19th century London looked like so we have a better sense of the worlds that Jack the Ripper operated in. I also want to look at these women in particular. Why them? When we think back on H.H. Holmes, we know that he had a relationship with each of these nine victims. He was either dating them, courting them, or knew them through various acquaintances. We also concluded last week that although Holmes definitely shows sociopathic tendencies, he didn't kill based on a need to fulfill any desires. So though he's a murderer, he's not really the infamous serial killer that we were all led to believe he was. Jack the Ripper, though, is a different story. We don't conclusively know the identity of Jack the Ripper, though there are some popular candidates. We also know that these women were targeted because of where they lived, not who they were. The media, and even the police investigating the murders, assumed that all these women were prostitutes, though there is no evidence to suggest that all of them were. So today, let's go through the facts of the Jack the Ripper case, sort through the historical context of late 19th century London, and try to paint a picture of these murders and how they fit into the bigger picture of the Western world at a time when general economic prosperity exacerbated or made worse a greater social divide between the rich and the poor. At 3.30 in the morning, August 31st, 1888, A man left his home in Bethnal Green to walk to work near Liverpool Street. He heads south, down Brady Street, and then cut through Bucks Row, which is today's Durward Street. It's not far from the Whitechapel tube station. The man saw a bundle lying in the side of an alley. It wasn't particularly well lit, so he went over to investigate. It seemed out of place compared to the normal sights of people sleeping in doorways, waiting until morning to start begging for money. When he approached, he could tell that it was a woman lying on the ground, but she was covered up. Another early morning worker passed by, and together, the two men looked at the woman lying on the ground. She was on her back, her legs were sticking straight out, and her skirts were raised up over her waist. The men didn't know what to do and couldn't quite tell if she was alive or dead. Her cheeks were warm, but her hands were cold. 
Not wanting to get involved or be late for work, the men respectfully pulled her skirts back down over her legs and carried on their way, agreeing to tell the first policeman they saw. Had there been more light, the men would have found a much more gruesome scene. The woman's throat was cut so deeply that Marianne Nichols, known as Polly Nichols, was essentially decapitated. She was also disemboweled. These two characteristics would become the Ripper's M.O., or modus operandi. Contextually, modus operandi means the particular way someone does something, especially if it's a well-established habit. It doesn't always have to refer to murder, but you'll often hear M.O. in that context if you watch true crime documentaries or listen to podcasts. In addition to those, there were other knife cuts in her abdomen on either side of the gash that caused the disembowelment. Her face was also heavily bruised on both sides, and she had also been stabbed in her nether regions twice with a knife. The first policeman on the scene discovered the body on a routine walk of the area shortly after the men left her. He remarked that he had walked through Buck's Row half an hour earlier and the body wasn't there, which helps explain why the men felt warmth in Polly's cheeks. She had only just been murdered. When the policeman inspected the body with the aid of a gas lamp, he saw blood coming out from her neck. Her clothes clearly disheveled, not just the skirt, but all of her clothes, and her hair bonnet was on the ground next to her. Reinforcements were called in along with a doctor who pronounced her dead at the scene around 4 a.m. The doctor also noted the faint warmth, telling him that she was only recently killed. Miss Polly Nichols was the first of five women killed in a span of two and a half months by the still unknown Jack the Ripper. Now, before we continue, it's important to get a better sense of what London was like in the late 19th century, and more specifically, the Whitechapel neighborhood where these murders took place. After, we'll take a look at the five victims and how they all ended up in Whitechapel on the other side of Jack the Ripper's knife. The East End of London in the late 19th century was an interesting place where many of the city's poor congregated in densely packed houses. There were also some nicer areas filled with hard-working families, but it's certainly not a place where you'll find the city's elite. Near the turn of the century, London's poor faced tons of problems. Rent was climbing. Unskilled laborers were poorly paid and lacked job security. It was becoming harder and harder to find proper lodgings as the area became more densely populated, and most beds were infested with fleas and other nasties. And on top of all this, large swaths of lower-income housing were being destroyed to make room for railroads and newer roads in general. Long story short, there were more people in an increasingly smaller area, and there weren't enough jobs and beds to go around. For those who didn't have the money or ability to find lodging, there were workhouses. Now bear with me, I need to go even further back into the past to set this one up. So we're actually going to go all the way back to the Black Death, which is my favorite topic of all time, by the way. So England had passed laws concerning the well-being of the nation's poor. During the plague, King Edward III passed the Ordinance of Laborers. The plague, you see, had wiped out so many people that there was a great demand for workers. The ordinance tried to get people back onto the fields. Now, it wasn't super effective, but one of the lingering ideas from this ordinance was that people should not give to beggars out of pity or charity, under pain of imprisonment. Anyone under the age of 60 should be working to provide for themselves. Now, a few years later, in 1351, the Statute of Laborers was passed to try and further regulate the labor force. These were all about dealing with vagrants and trying to increase the workforce. Now, stick with me, because this will all be relevant later when we talk about the workhouses. 
During the Tudor era, the poor laws were codified more directly. The 1495 Vagabonds and Beggars Act basically punished vagrants by putting them in stocks for three days and nights. And if you don't know what stocks are, they're those two wooden boards that trap your feet or maybe sometimes your head and hands in like small holes. And then the boards are then locked together so you're stuck there in full view of everyone often in the town square. It's public humiliation as a form of punishment, and you're typically only fed a little bit of bread and water, you know, just enough to survive. Now, Henry VIII, in 1531, passed the Vagabonds Act, changing the punishments from time in the stocks to whipping. And afterwards, the beggar was sent back to their last known address and told to find work or face further punishment. And in case you're wondering, new industries were created to give vagrants jobs during Henry VIII's reign. Things like making hats or feather beds, you know, stuff like that. It was an early form of a workhouse, and it's coming up soon. Don't worry, I'm not lost. Punishments got more severe over time, too. Under Edward VI, offending vagrants would also get branded with a big old V. And if they reoffended, they'd be put to death. So basically, we're just shaming the vagrants for not working. Under Elizabeth I, in 1572, punishments were a burn through the ear for the first offense and then hanging for the second offense. But this new law also made a distinction between those who chose the begging life and those who became unemployed against their own will. Those who were just down and out, right? They'd be able to benefit from collections and find work through churches or correction houses. Throughout her reign, more laws were passed to help the poor find work and punish those who refused. Let's fast forward a little bit. 1832, so we're in the 19th century now. 1832, the poor laws saw an amendment passed that would do several things to alleviate the impact of an increasing population in the poorer areas of the city. It reduced the cost and burden of those looking after the poor. It encouraged the poor to work hard to support themselves, which is an idea that we just trace back to the Black Death. And it took beggars off the streets. How? Workhouses. A workhouse is predicated on the idea that men, women, and children who were vagrants, so on the streets without work, needed a place to stay and work to do. Young children in workhouses would get a little bit of schooling, some technical training, and the parents and older children would work. If you were found to be a vagrant, you would be sent to your local workhouse to be fed, clothed, and housed, and in return, you would do work. Now, let's look at this from both sides. Did it get the poor off the streets and provide shelter and work to those without? Yeah, it did. But did people want to stay in the workhouses? No, 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 no. God, no. Critics of the poor laws called it a prison for the poor, and I agree. It roots back to the idea that the government didn't want the poor to be walking around the streets. But instead of dealing with the issues that led to their poverty, like poor sanitation, regulated rent and shop prices, medical care, access to education, clean water, access to clean water, affordable housing, etc., they just forced the poor to go to these workhouses in exchange for labor. It's not really fixing the problem, it's just offering a temporary solution. So one really excellent book on the Jack the Ripper murders is called The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhold. And what I appreciate the most about this book is that it focuses on the lives of the women that the Ripper killed, not the Ripper himself. It gives us a fascinating glimpse into the lives of Victorian women in the East End. Here's what she says of the poor laws and the workhouses. Quote, In 1834, the Poor Law Amendment sought to bring an end to what the government saw as an abuse of the system of charitable relief offered, up to that time, by local parishes. 
The poor were judged to be lazy and immoral paupers who refused to do honest work and bred bastards in enormous families while living off handouts. Now the government wished to compel the indigent to lead moral, hard-working lives by reducing what was called outdoor relief, or charity that was paid to impoverished families while they inhabited their own lodgings. Rather than giving them the opportunity to drink away at parish funds or indulge in illicit sexual behavior that led to more illegitimate children, a new system of highly regulated indoor relief was to be meted out inside the workhouse. It had two main goals, to regulate the lives of the poor by forcing them to earn a meager sustenance within the filth-ridden workhouse walls, and ultimately to frighten them into leading upstanding, industrious lives outside in the community. End quote. A lengthy passage there, but it succinctly sums up London's feelings toward the poor. The workhouses were London's way of punishing vagrants by removing charity and forcing them into a working environment more akin to a prison. The Ripper's first victim, Polly, frequented workhouses. We'll get into how and why a bit later when we look at who our victims were and how they ended up being chosen, but we do know that Polly definitely didn't want to be in the workhouses. Everyone around her, including presumably Polly herself, would have seen the workhouses as the absolute last choice for places to go. Staying at a workhouse carried with it a stigma that was hard to shed. It was really hitting rock bottom. Many would rather sleep on the streets and beg, or even turn to prostitution, before going to a workhouse voluntarily. Now, before your brain starts making connections, there is zero evidence to suggest that Polly Nichols was a prostitute. Some of the later ones were, but Polly was not. Just so you know. It's a common myth that Jack the Ripper targeted Whitechapel prostitutes, but that statement comes from baseless accusations from police and yellow journalistic-style newspapers. So anyway, the workhouses were just awful. Charles Dickens gave us some good insight on how awful the workhouses were. Go read Oliver Twist. You know, the famous, please, sir, I want some more line, right? And then he gets more, and then the guy attacks him, right? Dickens wrote extensively on late 19th century poverty in London. It was the world he lived in, and his social and political commentary are excellent. The titular character, Oliver Twist, was born and raised in this workhouse, and readers are given a pretty convincing case study of the horrors of the place. So anyway, why might a family end up on the streets and in a situation where they potentially might have to enter a workhouse? Well, one of the things about human history that has always fascinated me is how we really are at the mercy of tiny microbes. Disease, right? It's my favorite topic, because I'm a weirdo, but it really has influenced the course of our history. Now, in 19th century London, there were lots of diseases to contend with, and they often wiped out families, leaving those left behind, destitute and penniless, forced to leave their homes and comfortable lodgings for a life on the streets, or potentially worse, a life in the workhouses. Stay with us. We'll be right back. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. When there's a densely packed population in a small area, there will likely be an outbreak of one disease or another. You've got people sharing germs, trampling through muck, poor sanitation, the whole lot. 
particularly of concern in the late 19th century was tuberculosis, but also scarlet fever, typhoid, and cholera. Now, I've covered cholera in episode 8, the London cholera epidemic, so go give a listen to that episode if you're interested. And I talked briefly about tuberculosis, too, often called consumption, historically, in episode 14, the New England Vampire Panic. But I haven't covered scarlet fever yet, so I'll give you a basic rundown of that. Scarlet fever is a bacterial infection, not a virus. It typically infects children, but can also affect the elderly, basically those with compromised immune systems that aren't equipped to fight off the bacterial infection. The types of bacteria that cause scarlet fever come from the streptococcus family of bacteria, you know, the same family that can also cause strep throat, sometimes pneumonia, and oftentimes just basic sore throats. Now, scarlet fever presents as a pinkish, reddish rash that will cover a good chunk of the body. It'll start by looking like red blotches on your skin, but that will turn into an itchy, angry rash. The rash will start on the chest or the stomach, but soon spreads to the ears, the neck, the elbows, the thighs, and the groin. It usually does not spread to the face. The rash will go away after a week, but the skin will be all peely and gross for a while afterwards, like a really bad sunburn, except, you know, infection. Now, unfortunately for our densely packed London population, scarlet fever is very infectious. So children in a house that have developed scarlet fever will spread it to their siblings, and it did kill off a lot of kids. You may already know or have heard from people that a lot of children, before the widespread use of antibiotics, wouldn't make it past age five. Infant mortality rates were supremely high because their immune systems were not fully developed, and they were living in worlds that didn't appreciate how proper sanitation and access to clean water was important for survival. This is also a world before vaccines, so if a kid got a viral or a bacterial infection, there was no real medical way to help them. They just had to try to survive on their own. That's why so many of them died. For those that were already struggling to make ends meet, having family members who died from the various diseases and other horrible things present in industrial London made life more difficult. Those who died placed an emotional strain on families, but also an economical one, because there were now fewer able-bodied family members to help bring in the money so desperately needed for rising rent costs, increased price on goods, and more. One way that people coped with these troubling times, death, despair, poverty, was alcohol. Several of our ladies who ended up the victims of the Ripper had turned to drink to cope with the harshness of their lives. The second victim, for example, Annie Chapman, was an alcoholic. Her husband had an excellent job as a coach driver for a wealthy family, but Annie's drinking put his job at risk, and Annie ended up leaving the family and settling in Whitechapel. But more on her later. I'm going to do individual bios of all five women. So the overall picture you should have in your minds when thinking about the streets of Whitechapel, or perhaps of the East End in general, is one in which people were hard on their luck and trying to survive with little government help. The places the government did want them to go, the workhouses, were often seen as the worst possible option, so instead people would sleep on the streets. So the area was a mix of the poor, the working class, and tradesmen like printers and blacksmiths. Some areas did have middle classes who enjoyed luxuries, because at least one of our victims worked as a housemaid for an upper middle class family in the East End, but in general, the streets were cramped and pestilent. The social and political tensions were pretty high. One year before the murders, in the fall of 1887, the police clashed with protesters on Trafalgar Square over the horrible and squalid conditions in which they were forced to live. In fact, one of our victims, Polly Nichols, was at that protest. 
The result was this us versus them mentality. The wealthier London citizens looked down on the working class and poor, fearing a revolution. And it was out of this political and social turmoil on the streets of the East End that Jack the Ripper emerged from the darkness and killed five women in gruesome, horrific ways. Polly Nichols, the first victim, came from a hard-working family. She married a printer named William, and the couple had several kids. Now, Polly and her family were fortunate to apply and live in the Peabody buildings. So I've previously set up the idea that the workhouses were places to put the poor, right? London wanted its vagrants off the streets, but while there were those who looked down upon the working classes and poor, not everyone was so callous. An American banker who worked in London, named George Peabody, was determined to use his wealth to benefit the people of his now adoptive home, London. He set up a system of drinking fountains, he put together a handful of schools, but he is best known for his housing projects. The Peabody buildings were meant to help relieve the housing crisis for London's poverty-stricken residents. Peabody buildings had shops on the ground floor with flats, or apartments, above. There were baths and laundry facilities, toilets were installed so that two flats could share one between them, and more. It was a huge improvement over the flea-ridden beds of lodging houses, and of course, a way better alternative than workhouses for families down on their luck. But to secure a room in the Peabody building, potential tenants had to prove they were of good moral character. Things like adultery would not be tolerated, and you'd be thrown out for engaging in it. Same with other vices. Excessive drinking, prostitution, etc. Rent was due weekly, and you had to show proof of stable employment. And there was also nighttime curfew. It was essentially a lifeline to help out struggling working-class families who wanted to work and lead a clean life, but didn't have the opportunity to find appropriate housing. Polly Nichols, her husband, and their children managed to secure a coveted apartment in the Peabody building. Now, at some point, Polly Nichols moves out. According to her, her husband was having an affair with the woman next door. Polly's husband, though, claims that Polly was an alcoholic. We do know that Mr. Nichols did end up shacking up with the maybe-affair partner, so maybe Polly was right. But either way, Polly ended up leaving the Peabody building, her husband, and her children behind. Now after that, Polly bounced around between sleeping on the streets and begging for food and living in the local workhouse, the Lambeth Workhouse. She had temporarily worked as a domestic servant for a middle-class family, but it didn't work out. Her alcoholism was spiraling out of control, and it's possible that she stole several articles of clothing and fled after a few months of working with that family. Later that year, August 31st, 1888, she became the first canonical victim of Jack the Ripper. Now, Polly Nichols was a woman born to a working-class family. She married a man with good job prospects, though their marriage broke down. Her circumstances put her on the street, and her alcoholism warped her priorities. Her only options were to find meaningful employment and live in cheap lodgings, or be sent to the workhouse. And she tried both. She wasn't able to keep her job as a domestic servant because of her penchant for the drink, and she hated living in the workhouses. And unfortunately for Polly, she walked down the wrong alley at the wrong time, and she was the first to end up under Jack the Ripper's knife. The second victim was Annie Chapman. Annie was also born to a working-class family. She married her husband, John Chapman, and the two with their children lived in various places in West London, not the East End. The Chapmans moved to Windsor, where John got a really stable job as a coachman. Pun intended. The Chapmans lived in the attic of a cottage on the property, and life was good, considering all of the horrible things that late 19th century families had to put up with, like high infant mortality rates, disease, etc. 
But much like Polly, Annie was a bit too fond of alcohol. At one point, her husband even put her into what was basically an alcohol rehab center, but it didn't stop Annie from drinking. And since they lived on a nice estate, John would have lost his job as a coachman with his wife stumbling around drunk all the time, so the couple separated. John and their surviving children continued to live on the estate, and Annie moved on. She could have gone back to any of the places in West London where she had lived and grown up, but she ended up in the East End in Whitechapel. Now Annie, like other women who didn't have a home or stable employment, bounced around lodging houses for a while. Her ex-husband was giving her an allowance of 10 shillings a week, which she used to pay for beds and for more drink. But when her husband died two years later, the money stopped coming. Now, for single women, it was hard to survive in the slums. It was the same with Polly Nichols. Both women knew that to survive, they had to find a male companion. It was likely this outcome that led investigators and journalists after the fact to make the assumption that these women were prostitutes. Sure, they were living with other men out of wedlock, which is frowned upon at the time, but they also had little choice. To be a woman, alone, on the dark streets of London was a dangerous proposition. Women either needed to band together in a shared lodging, find a male companion, or go into the workhouse. And nobody wanted to end up at the workhouse, but it's important to note that there is little evidence that Annie was a prostitute. On July 19th, 1887, so before the Ripper murders, Police Commissioner Charles Warren issued the following order. The police are not justified in calling any woman a common prostitute unless she so describes herself or has been convicted as such. Although a police constable may be perfectly convinced in his own mind that she is such, he should not assume that any particular woman is a common prostitute unless there are witnesses and proof that attest to this. So, there's no evidence to suggest that she sold sex. Any keeping male companions to stay safe does not make her a prostitute. It makes her a woman doing what it takes to survive on the streets with no other place to go. To make money to pay for lodgings, Annie would sell things at a local market, like crochet and flowers and matches. Annie took up with a handful of men, but her health was rapidly declining. A lifetime of drinking had taken its toll on her, and she also likely contracted tuberculosis because she was growing pale and sickly. So, sick, drunk, and trying to find a place to sleep, Annie was wandering the dark streets early in the morning on September 8, 1888. She turned down Hanbury Street, where she, unfortunately, met up with Jack the Ripper. Now, if we can trust the source, which is a supposed eyewitness account, Annie Chapman was last seen alive talking with a man around 5.30 a.m. in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street in the Spitalfields. Her body was discovered right before 6 a.m., so 30 minutes later, by a man who lived at that address. She was near the back door of the property, and upon finding her, the man alerted others nearby to go find a policeman. Eventually, a doctor was called in, too, who was able to make a definite link between the first confirmed victim, Polly Nichols, and Annie. Because Annie Chapman's throat had been cut deeply, twice, severing her head from her body. Her abdomen was cut open... But this time, the Ripper got more gruesome with it. So if you have a sensitive stomach, you've been warned. Some of the flesh cut from her abdomen was picked up and placed on her left shoulder. Her small intestines, along with another small section of skin, were placed on her right shoulder. And in addition, her uterus, vagina, and parts of her bladder had been removed. They were just gone from the body. 
Whereas Polly's abdomen was sliced and uh, pieces of her intestines naturally fell out, the Ripper had intentionally removed parts of Annie's and placed it elsewhere, creating a grisly tableau. Polly, the first victim, had been stabbed twice in her lady parts, right? But Annie had hers removed. It was clear that the Ripper was growing in confidence and in gruesomeness. By this time, theories were running wild about who the killer could be. The surgeon who examined Annie Chapman's body speculated that perhaps she was killed to obtain her womb, as that was a particularly strange act. The coroner caused a bit of a stir when he suggested that maybe someone was trying to collect uteruses to sell to medical schools. He claims that the sub-curator of a pathological museum at a London medical school had once approached him with information about this American dude who offered him 20 pounds for each womb, which is a significant sum for the late 19th century. And you know, this actually jives pretty well with what we know about the American medical profession from our podcast last week on H.H. Holmes. Selling cadavers to medical schools was a thing, and it led to some illicit businesses and an increase in grave robbing. Was it possible that Annie Chapman was killed and her body mutilated so that her parts could be sold? Yeah, I, I suppose, but regardless, you can imagine the newspapers went absolutely nuts with this. Now, the next two murders happened a few weeks later on the same day, actually, September 30th, 1888. Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were found dead 45 minutes apart. It was called the double event. But let's start with the third girl found, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was born in a small village in Sweden with the surname Gustafsdotter. By the way, if you see surnames with daughter at the end of it, it is what it sounds like. Daughter. The daughter of Gustav. Gustav's daughter. If she were born a male, she would have been called Gustav's son. Son of Gustav. Cool, right? So anyway, she worked in the nearby city of Gothenburg as a domestic servant, and though she didn't stay in the trade long. Without going into too much detail as to how, she was essentially listed as a prostitute in public records. In early 1865, when she appears on the police records, she was also at least six months pregnant and had syphilis, a sexually transmitted infection that had been making the rounds in Europe since, according to the earliest records, 1495. For those of you interested in a short history of venereal diseases, which is a sentence I've never said out loud before, there is a theory that Columbus and his men were the first to introduce syphilis to Afro-Eurasia, which is short form for the three continent groups, Africa, Europe, and Asia, in case you've never heard me or anybody else say that before. And the strain that predominated Europe from 1493 onwards, you know, when Columbus came back from the quote-unquote New World, was from the Americas. But there is also DNA evidence taken from bodies pre-1492 that suggests that there were strains of syphilis in Europe circulating before Columbus's voyage. So do what you want with that information, I guess. Now, whether or not Elizabeth was a prostitute, or if she just had a fling, perhaps with the family she was a servant for, we don't know. But for women accused of being a prostitute, and then being marked on the police roll as a prostitute, the stigma associated with that meant that she could never get a proper job again. Not for a single, young, pregnant woman in the 19th century. So whether she was always a prostitute, or she became one as a result of the allegations, we can't say for sure. But we do know that Elizabeth Stride, unlike number one Polly Nichols and number two Annie Chapman, was definitely a sex worker. In February 1866, Elizabeth immigrated to London and got a job as a housemaid. 
and it was in this stage of her life that she met her husband, John Stride. They were married in 1869 and moved to the East End to open up a coffee shop near the dockyards. It was honest, dependable work. Elizabeth's experience as a servant came in handy for this new business, but unfortunately the coffee shop had a hard time competing with local pubs, and the pair struggled. Eventually, the failing business tore their marriage apart, and it didn't help that Elizabeth couldn't conceive, which is something expected of married women, back then at least. It's most likely because of the syphilis she contracted back in Sweden. But in any case, the two separated. Elizabeth left her husband and returned to begging on the streets, hopping in and out of lodgings in Whitechapel. Now, Elizabeth's behavior started to change at this point. She pops up in arrest records here and there for prostitution, as well as drunk and disorderly conduct. Over time, she drank more and more, so there was an increase in arrests. She also would have been suffering from late-stage syphilis by this point. Alright, I was hoping to avoid this, but I do want to educate you all about syphilis so you understand how serious it is. I'm not going to get crude with it, I'll just provide you with the facts. Syphilis is a sexually transmitted infection that spreads in two primary ways contact with a syphilis sore during sex, or from an infected mother to her unborn baby. You cannot get it from just casual contact with things that someone with syphilis touched. It's not like the cold or flu virus. You're not going to touch a door handle that somebody with syphilis has and then contract syphilis. That's not how it works. Sexually transmitted infection, right? Now, it is curable with the right type of antibiotics if it's diagnosed properly. But for those who don't get treated, or perhaps in historic times where there was no treatment, there are four stages to the disease. The primary stage presents as a sore, or multiple sores, around the affected area, so where you contracted the syphilis. They are usually hard, round, painless little bumps that will last from three to six weeks. And if you don't get treated at the stage, the sores will still go away, but you will enter into the second stage. The secondary stage presents as rashes in the infected areas, but those rashes can also spread to the palms, interestingly enough, and also the bottom of your feet. So the rash will be a red or reddish-brown rough patch. It's not an itchy rash, though, and you may not even notice it. But you may also get the normal side effects of any infection. Fever, swollen lymph nodes, sore throat, headaches, muscle aches, and fatigue. The symptoms will eventually subside, regardless of treatment. But if you don't get treated, syphilis will stay in your body for years, and this is known as the latent stage. After a long time, your untreated syphilis infection can progress to the final stage called the tertiary stage. It will occur anywhere from 10 to 30 years after initial infection, and it affects people differently, but here are the potential problems. Neurosyphilis is where it spreads to your brain, hence neuro. You'll experience headaches, muscle weakness, and potentially difficulty with muscle movements. It will also cause changes to your mental state, like having trouble focusing, changing your personality, and a generalized state of confusion. You can also develop dementia. Ocular syphilis is, you guessed it, where syphilis spreads to your eyes. You'll experience eye pain and redness, changes to your vision, or even blindness. Otosyphilis, O-T-O, is where the infection spreads to your ear. You may experience hearing loss, tinnitus, which is a persistent ringing or buzzing in your ears, and vertigo, a feeling like your surroundings are moving or spinning. Now, poor Elizabeth Stride was, at this point, suffering from tertiary stage syphilis, coupled with drinking and the hard life of living in and out of lodgings, 
and sleeping rough on the streets, and it's a disaster waiting to happen. It also helps explain the personality changes. Now, on the night of September 29th, Elizabeth would have been walking around her base area of Flower and Dean streets. She probably went for a drink at the local pub and then went out walking the streets to sell herself for more money. Elizabeth's stride was found at 1 a.m. in Dutfield's yard off of the old Burner Street. Today, it's Enrique Street off the A13. She had a single incision across her neck that sliced open her carotid artery and trachea. But unlike the second victim, Annie Chapman, her body was not mutilated beyond this. But the fourth victim, Catherine Eddowes, was. Catherine, called Kate by her friends and family, was born in Wolverhampton on the northwest outskirts of Birmingham in the West Midlands. Her father worked in tin factories, but he was a union man and was later arrested and charged in connection with some strikes and protests. The family had to leave, so they went south to London, where there would be more job opportunities. Her family was big. She had nine surviving brothers and sisters, which meant that their life was hard. They bounced around from house to house, surviving only on her father's tin man's salary. But despite this, the children were educated best they could be. Life was decent enough for this big family until both the parents died. Her mother of tuberculosis in 1855, and her father of the same disease two years later. And this, of course, broke the family apart. The older siblings were okay, and some of them married off quickly, but the younger ones were taken to orphan workhouses. So picture Oliver Twist all over again. Kate was 15 when she was orphaned, and the older siblings decided to send her back to Wolverhampton to live with her aunt. And she got a job working as a tin plate stamper, not unlike her father. Now, unfortunately, this didn't last long, and Kate was fired from her job. She left her aunt and went to Birmingham, where she met and resided with a man named Thomas Conway. It's not clear if they married, but there's no certificate to prove they did. But they did have two children, and Kate started calling herself Kate Conway. They eventually moved to London in Westminster and had more kids, and they had a relatively good life there for 12 years, but Kate had started drinking. You guys starting to pick up a trend here? I'll spare the longer details, but it eventually drove the family apart, Kate left her husband and the children, and she started shacking up with another guy, and they lived in a lodging house at Flower and Dean Streets, the same place that the third victim, Elizabeth Stride, used to frequent. Maybe they knew each other. Who knows? But Kate Eddowes pops up in police records for drunk and disorderly conduct, so we know that her drinking continued. She earned a living performing domestic work and also picking hops in the summer near Kent, which is a seasonal job that a lot of London's impoverished did to help earn extra money. Hops, by the way, is the primary, like, grain ingredient in beer, so, you know, big business. Now, like with the first two victims, there's no real evidence to suggest that she was a prostitute. On the night that she died, Kate was arrested for drunk and disorderly conduct. She convinced the cops that she was no longer drunk, so they released her from the station at 1 a.m. From there, she would have wandered around the streets, either looking for the guy she was living with at the time, or maybe just another pub, and at some point she decided to just sleep rough for the rest of the night. She sat down against a wall, closed her eyes, and fell asleep, but she never woke up. Kate was found on Mitre Street, near Aldgate Square and the Aldgate Tube Station, about a 15-minute walk away from where Elizabeth was killed. Her throat was severed, her abdomen cut open. Her intestines were removed and placed on her right shoulder, just like with the second victim, Annie Chapman. But this time, a part of those intestines were cut from the rest and placed between her body and her left arm. In addition to this, Kate's left kidney was removed along with part of her uterus. 
Her nose was cut off. Her cheeks were slashed with the shape of a triangle, and her eyelids were split in half. Part of her right ear was found severed and buried in her clothing, and her body was still warm when she was found, so they had only just missed her killer. Super gross, right? Now, the final victim was Mary Jane Kelly, who, unlike the other four women, was found lying in her bed in the single room she rented on Dorset Street in the Spitalfields. Mary Jane Kelly made up a lot of stories about her past. She would claim she was born in Limerick, Ireland, or sometimes she would say she was Welsh, and her parents, who abandoned her, lived in Cardiff, so it's really difficult to know Mary Jane's true past. Ripper historians have a hard time getting information about her, so her time before ending up in London is not very well known. Mary Jane Kelly may not even be her real name, so it would be almost impossible to find her in records. But what we do know about her is that she, like the third victim Elizabeth Stride, was a prostitute. Now, when they found Mary Jane, her face was so badly slashed that she was beyond recognition. Her throat was severed so deeply that her spine was visible. The abdomen was almost completely emptied of organs. Her uterus, her kidneys, and one breast had been removed and placed underneath her head. Other organs were placed next to her foot and in the bed next to her. Sections of her abdomen skin and also parts of her thighs were placed on the bedside table. The heart was missing altogether and never found. And of all five victims, Mary Jane Kelly was the most eviscerated. As with many serial killers, the Ripper progressed in intensity with each successive kill. And since she was in a room and not on the street, the Ripper had more time with her body. Now, as these murders were going on, the police were desperately trying to find the perpetrator. The name Jack the Ripper actually comes from a postcard sent to the media on October 1st, 1888. It's known as the Saucy Jackie postcard. The author, who signs the card Jack the Ripper, claims that he killed Stride and Eddowes on the same day, calling it the, quote, double event, which is what we now call it as well. However, the Saucy Jackie postcard is widely considered to be a hoax. Now, two weeks later, on October 16th, 1888, a square box containing, ready, a preserved human kidney was sent to the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, which is a group who were actively searching for the Ripper. They weren't cops, but they also weren't vigilantes, like the name implies. Think of them more like civilians who patrolled the streets keeping an eye on things, particularly at night, to help support what the cops were doing, like a neighborhood watch of sorts. Anyway, with the kidney in a box was a letter that at the top said it came from hell. There was actually a Jack the Ripper movie starring Johnny Depp, Heather Graham, and Ian Holm called From Hell back in 2001. I watched it when I was young because I'm a total weirdo. It was just okay, not amazing. Think of it more like historical fiction. The movie suggested that there was this whole upper-class conspiracy and that the rich people were murdering the prostitutes. I don't know, it was weird. It only got a 57% on Rotten Tomatoes. Anyway, the From Hell letter author said that he fried and ate the other kidney that was not in the box. Guys, look! See, I did it! I did it! I managed to once again bring cannibalism into this. There was always a good chance that cannibalism will pop up in an AF-Out episode. Totally unplanned, I swear to God. I was just trying to do one on Jack the Ripper, but here we go. He claims that he ate the other kidney. It's very Silence of the Lambs. Maybe he sliced up the kidney with some fava beans. 
Anyway, so the cops believed that it belonged to Kate Eddowes, the fourth victim, because one, it matched Kate's other kidney, and it had evidence of the same renal disease. Renal is like the root word for kidney, R-E-N-A-L, renal. I mean, listen, we're not living in the age of DNA testing yet, right? But it's certainly a logical and reasonable suggestion. This letter and kidney in a box could also have just been a sick prank, as organs could be found in medical offices and whatnot, so we don't really know if this came from the killer or not, or if it belonged to one of the victims. Now, there were also more killings in Whitechapel after Mary Jane Kelly, but they didn't seem to have the same M.O. as the Ripper killings, so they aren't generally attributed to our guy. It's also possible that the third victim, Elizabeth Stride, was not actually a Ripper kill. Her throat was cut, right? But that's it. We chalk up the two murders to our one guy because of that saucy Jackie postcard claiming the double event, but we're not really sure if she was a Ripper victim. But she's generally considered to be one, so we'll include her anyway. Now, as the police did their investigative work, they were working on two basic premises. That the women were prostitutes, which we have debunked, and that the Ripper must be in a position where mutilations are common. So maybe he was a butcher or a slaughterer by trade, or maybe a surgeon or a physician. Some of the policemen claimed it must be a doctor because of the slices and incisions on the body, but others claimed that the work was pretty amateur, so he was more likely to be a butcher. But regardless, we never caught the guy definitively. Theories about who this guy was range pretty dramatically. Some thought the Ripper worked and lived locally because all the murders happened in Whitechapel. Others believed that the Ripper was an upper-class man who came to the area to do his killings, either because he thought it would go unnoticed, being in the slums, or perhaps as an extension of the derision that so many of London's elite had against the poor, which we explored a bit earlier when I did the context. There were so many men investigated for this, including famous ones like the author Lewis Carroll, who you would know was the guy who wrote the books that make up the Alice in Wonderland stories. But the problem is that all the evidence they built up against this large collection of suspects is circumstantial at best, so they were never able to find the guy. There's even a theory that it was actually just H.H. Holmes, a killer and fraudster operating out of mainly Chicago. The theory goes that he traveled to London in 1888, which was before most of the murders that he committed, and he, he killed these women as a form of practice. The last episode we did was about Holmes, so go give that one a listen if you haven't already. But honestly, this theory is just not likely, because Holmes's whereabouts are pretty well documented, and he was also not a serial killer in that he killed in order to fulfill a need or desire, right? He killed people who got in his way or knew too much about his frauds. The M.O. of these killers is completely different, so on that basis alone, I'm pretty sure the two are not at all related. Now, if we have to have a silver lining to this story, the Ripper murders really exposed some of the problems in London's East End. It also woke up public opinion to the horrors and dangers that people living on the streets had to endure. As a result, some of the slums were cleaned up to try to clean up the streets. Not in a way where they wanted to hide the poor in workhouses, but in a way where there would be more sanitary living conditions for the people there. And over time, the image of Jack the Ripper has grown from a childhood boogeyman to a symbol of the aristocracy, a gentleman in a top hat expressing his hatred for prostitutes and the downtrodden. The Ripper became a symbol of the oppression of the rich against the poor, of upper-class exploitation against the lower classes. Today, he appears in tons of media, books, TV shows, and movies alike. And in 2006, the BBC labeled him as the worst Briton in history, which is hilarious, by the way. 
Now, we may never know who Jack the Ripper is, but studying his murders and taking a closer look at the five women he killed gives us some excellent insight into life in the East End of London in the late 19th century. Thanks for joining me for this episode of A Popular History of Unpopular Things. My name is Kelly Beard, and I hope you've enjoyed the story of Jack the Ripper. Thank you for supporting my podcast, and if you haven't already checked out my other episodes, go have a listen. It really helps support the channel. Be sure to follow my podcast, available wherever you listen, so you know when new episodes are dropped. And stay tuned to get a popular history of unpopular things.